Excellent. Morning, everybody. Uh, If you have a Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 17. Um, If you haven't got a Bible, don't worry. Um, You might be able to pull it up on your phone, but otherwise just listen along. Uh, We're going to look at Acts 17, verses 1 to 15 this morning. And the title I've given to this morning's message is How to Turn the World Upside Down. Okay, so it's kind of a, a very practical sermon this morning. It's a... um, Kind of thing you well actually it's not the kind of thing you find on a YouTube video but you know when you find videos that tell you how to do things you didn't know that you could do this morning we're going to see how to turn the world upside down uh, and I want to read this morning up front from Acts 17 so uh, beginning at verse one now when they Paul and Silas had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. I was, or I have been recently, reading uh, a book put out by Life magazine titled The Hundred People Who Changed the World. And this book is full of many well-known historical figures. You could probably predict some of them. People like Aristotle, Alexander the Great... Gandhi, Napoleon, George Washington, Churchill, Leonardo da Vinci, William Shakespeare, Beethoven, Dr. Zeus, and the Beatles, and many more. And of course, they included Jesus. Uh, Now, the book began with a statement that I thought was eminently wise, but only 99% accurate. Here's Here's how the book began. Right off the bat, let us be eminently clear, we do not claim that the people you're about to meet are the 100 people who changed the world. Many thousands more than a mere 100 
have affected real and lasting change. And to claim that any hundred are the top 100, as if, they were, as if this were the hit parade or the billboard charts, would be, in our estimation, an exercise in either futility or absurdity or both. And I thought, I agree with that statement almost. Because there's, of course, one person on the list that has had a greater impact on human history and more profoundly changed the world than all of the rest put together. Uh, as a well-known poem once said, all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life of Jesus. So apart from that, this book, I think, is right when it says you can't limit the list of people who've changed the world to just 100. There's one man who has changed it more than all the rest, but then there are many, many more people who have changed it as well. And for one thing, our passage this morning introduces us to two more people that aren't in that book or on that list, Paul and Silas. And their critics at the time were describing these men as those who were turning the world upside down. And the continuing account of their missionary journey here reminds us, in fact, that every Christian believer has in their possession something that can turn the world upside down and change the world forever. And so this morning, we're going to explore what that world-changing possession is and how we should respond to it and handle it and use it for the eternal good of the people around us. Uh, so let's dive in. We have a map once again, just in case you want to keep up with Paul's journey. Last time in Acts, we saw Paul and Silas in Philippi. And if you remember, they were, they were uh, in prison. But through the gospel, they saw uh, uh, so many different conversions, different people being saved with all sorts of different testimonies. And now they're continuing this second missionary journey. They're going to travel southwest, uh, just under 100 miles down to Thessalonica, and this is the church that Paul would later write to, saying, 1 Thessalonians 2, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And so Acts 17 is that visit that Paul later talks about in his letter. A visit that would create conflict but wouldn't be in vain. Because as always, they brought with them something so powerful that it turned the world upside down wherever it went. Upsetting some people, but gloriously transforming the lives and the futures of others. It's talking, of course, about the gospel. We're talking about the very saving word of God. And this morning's passage, it shines a spotlight on that word. It's only a short account that we're going to be looking at, but it's quite striking how central a role God's Word plays here, both in sharing it and hearing it. This passage is an encouragement to us this morning, as we'll see, to be people who both faithfully pass on God's Word, on the one hand, and who nobly listen to God's Word on the other. So I've just got two simple points this morning, two things this passage calls us to be. Faithful witnesses and noble listeners. And as we'll see, when we embrace those two things into our lives, 
when we strive to be faithful witnesses and noble listeners to God's words, we will find God turning our lives upside down for the better and in turn using us to turn other people's lives upside down for the better as well. So, first heading this morning, faithful witnesses with the words. And I want to begin with a question. What is the best way to tell someone about Jesus? What is the best way to introduce someone to the Christian faith? Let's say they, they, they don't know anything about it or they know very little about it. What's the best way? Well, I think the repeated answer that's demonstrated throughout the book of Acts is to take people to the word of God. The best place to introduce people to Jesus is by taking them to this book, opening its pages and beginning to show it to them. Which is exactly what we find Paul and Silas doing again. Now they get to the city of Thessalonica. So verse 2, Paul went into the synagogue as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Wherever they went, Paul and Silas, their greatest confidence for effective evangelism was in opening up and sharing God's word. Now, if we're honest, we, most of us, feel very unconfident in evangelism. While we long for other people that we know and that we love to meet Jesus, most of us really feel like we lack either the credentials or the wisdom or the persuasive power necessary to tell people about our Savior. We don't have enough confidence in ourselves. But the striking truth here is that neither did Paul and Silas. Neither did the many everyday witnessing Christians in the early church. They didn't have confidence in themselves either. They didn't need it. Their confidence was not in themselves. It was in God's words. And here at the beginning of Acts 17, we see three ways that God's word was their confidence and could be and should be our confidence as well. So first of all, we see that they were confident in the Bible's authority, that they knew God is the author of this book, that all scripture is breathed out by God. And because they knew that God was the author, they knew this book was the very best authority on how to tell a person about Jesus, how to help them come to know God. Now, oftentimes in evangelism, I think we can be tempted to try and convince people of our message by all sorts of other means. Uh, we can appeal to things like logic or science or common sense or philosophy. We can talk about the difference that Christianity's made in our lives and in the lives of many other people. And none of those things are necessarily wrong, and some of them can be really helpful. But none of those things have in themselves the power, the authority to lead a person to God. Whereas the scriptures, as Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3, are fully able to make a person wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures are able to tell someone everything they need to know to be saved. And so with absolute confidence in the Bible's own authority, Paul and Silas are happy to just lead people to the Word and let the Word and its author do the work. So they're confident in its authority. Secondly, they're confident in the Bible's reasonableness. Uh, Luke tells us that now with Bible, or, or at least for them, of course, it was just the Old Testament at this point, in hand, verse 2 and 3, Paul reasoned 
explained and proved from the scriptures. And what all of those verbs tell us is that Paul trusted that this book was both rational and reasonable, that it made sense. Paul was confident this book's not self-contradictory, it's not nonsensical. Paul trusted this book could stand on its own two feet and bear the weight of investigation and close scrutiny. Which means, as well, he wasn't panicked when people perhaps pushed back on him with questions. He returned, we're told, week after week to help them understand it, help them find answers to the questions they had, help them to think rationally about what the Scriptures revealed about Jesus. He was confident that the Scriptures could do that. Confident not just in its authority, but also in its reasonableness. And thirdly, he was confident in its message. Paul knew the Scriptures were all about Jesus. Again, even the Old Testament, all about Jesus. And of course, it's Jesus that we want people to come to know, isn't it? As we think about reaching out and witnessing and, and, and encouraging someone, giving them what they need to become a Christian, what we want to give them is Jesus. We want to tell them about him and show them what he's like and what he's said and what he has done. And it's in this book where people can encounter him best. He jumps off the pages of the Bible into people's lives. And so Paul is reasoning with them from the Scriptures, verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Paul and Silas, they knew that what everybody needed to know was who this Jesus is. And they knew that everything... The person needed to know about Jesus was here in the scriptures, especially this glorious good news that God, the God against whom we had so terribly sinned and rebelled, has sent his own son to suffer and die for our sins. That is the message of this book. According to verse 3, in here is the proof that that was necessary, that there is no other way for sinners like us to be saved. In here is the evidence that God raised Jesus from the dead. In here are the promises that all who repent and believe in him will be forgiven and saved and raised to new life forever. It's no wonder that the early church's confidence as witnesses was not in themselves but in the word. Everything they needed for evangelism was found in here. And again, they were doing this, of course, just with the Old Testament. How much more confident can we be now that we have the Old and New Testament together, the, 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 the finished canon of the Bible, the witness of God, how much more confidence we can have that we have all we need to point people to Jesus, that they might be saved. So here's a really practical question now. How might we begin to do this with someone we know? Now, of course, we could invite them to church. Uh, we, we open the Bible here every week. Church is a really good place for someone to begin to see what the Scriptures say about Jesus. But realistically, that's a big first step, isn't it? And maybe some of us have tried it, and we found in this day and age in particular, it's a big thing for someone to agree just out of the blue to come to church. Well, maybe we could invite them to something more introductory. We could invite them to Christianity Explored or something like that. But even that is a big ask, isn't it, sometimes for people perhaps people especially who know nothing about the Christian faith, to, to come into even a small group of people and, and do a, a sort of a group study like that can be daunting and put people off. 
Um, it's good to invite people to that, and if they're willing, fantastic. Uh, but they're not always willing to start there. There is another way, though, to begin to introduce someone to Jesus through the pages of the Bible, to actually get the ball rolling, perhaps for the very first time. And, and this is a method that I guess Christians have been doing down the ages, but it's actually proving to be increasingly effective in our 21st century world, across our nation and further afield too. It's the method of regular everyday Christians like you and me asking a non-Christian friend if they just perhaps like to grab a coffee or a tea and look together with us, one-to-one, at the beginning of something like John's Gospel, just to see from the Bible what it says firsthand about what life is about, what God is like, what Christianity is is all about. And one resource that's been particularly helpful to Christians recently and over the last few years is something called the Word One-to-One. And so I wanted to mention this this morning. Uh, You may have heard us mention it before. I think we actually did a training session on it a few years back. It's been on our radar for a while, and some of you, I think, have even used it to, to begin to introduce a friend to Jesus. And it's definitely something we'd like to explore more again as a church going forward. And actually, just to whet your appetite, I wanted to do something a little bit unusual this morning, and that's to show a short three-minute video right here in the middle of uh, our message this morning to give you a bit more of an idea of what it does, uh, hopefully whet your appetite for it. So if this works, here's a short video. Today, we live in a biblically ignorant age. Our friends simply don't know what the best-selling book in the world actually says. They haven't opened one in years. In fact, if they've got one, it's probably collecting dust on a shelf somewhere at home. They know it probably contains some really useful stuff. They just haven't looked. And when it comes to the real issues of life, they're surprisingly open to admitting they do not have any serious answers. Now, this does not mean that your friends are ready or willing to think about Christianity or willing to think about going to church. Actually, why would they? But perhaps it does mean that they would be interested in just seeing what the Bible actually says. We have written the word one-to-one so that it can be used by anyone. That means for you and your friends and your circle of contacts, a circle which will be unique to you. First, you need to ask somebody. Ask a friend if they want to read the Bible with you. While that may sound scary, there are many people who want to find out what the Bible really says. They just need some help in doing it. I thought that it would be hard to ask my friend to read the Bible with me, but actually it was, it was pretty simple. I was really excited and surprised that my friend actually wants to read the Gospel with me. Everything you need to read the Bible with a friend is contained in this resource. It's designed in such a way that it's simple to use. Because on the left here is John's Gospel in plain, clear English. And it's broken down into chunks, so it's really not that overwhelming. I like that there's no physical Bible involved, so we can read the material anywhere without her feeling awkward. In the middle section, there are questions and comments. You can use these however you like. You may wish to do it rhetorically so your friend sits there and listens or you could do it interactively. The book has these really helpful sections to help you explain the historical context as well as the context of the passage. 
the answers are here on the right hand side. This means that your friend has no embarrassment if they don't know the answer. And you have confidence in explaining what the Bible passage means. It's so simple that anyone can do it. It was really fantastic to see the Bible really come to life as she read it for herself. But it's so important that everyone really must try it. Uh, and as you do, you present Jesus to your friends through his word. We hope that you'll be able to discover by looking at John the clarity and the power of God's word. So just a short little teaser, um, but I, honestly, I'm just, um, I was freshly reminded of this, of this resource recently, listened to a podcast on it, and really felt uh, quite inspired, and feel like this is something that, uh, that we could use, and by using it, or doing something similar to it, although I think it's a great resource to do it with, uh, exercise the same confidence that Paul and Silas were having as they stood before a whole bunch of people, and, and preached and taught from the scriptures. We can exercise that same confidence ourselves as we sit down with a friend and just start to open up the pages of John's gospel with them. Um, yes, of course, Paul was up the front preaching. In this scenario, we're just sat down over a coffee chatting. But the ground of our confidence would be the same as Paul's. It would be rooted in the same thing, rooted in God's own word as we begin to open the pages of the Bible with a friend. So that's the first thing we see this morning, the call to be faithful witnesses with the Word. The second thing we see now is the call to be noble listeners too, noble listeners to the Word. Uh, so if, you, if you've got your Bible open still, drop down to 17, chapter 17, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now, I think some of us would love to live in more noble times. Some of us uh, have aspirations. We'd love to have lived in sort of some kind of medieval world or, or King Arthur-like times when there were real noble women and noble men and knights and castles and all the rest that goes with that. But here, Luke begins to tell us the secret of a noble life, the secret of being noble, even if you don't have a castle. It turns out it has nothing to do with castles or ancestry or what school you went to or your educational achievements or titles or knighthoods. True nobility in God's eyes is found in how we position ourselves and posture ourselves towards God's word. Luke describes the Bereans' nobility by how they posture themselves towards what God has said. And we see here three things about their noble posture. And so that's what I want to spend our remaining time doing, just exploring these three aspects of their noble posture. First of all, they were open. Verse 11, they received the word. The Bereans were open to receiving God's word. Back in Thessalonica earlier on, there were some who simply rejected the message out of hand. They weren't open to it. They didn't want to hear it. They were closed to reason. They were blinded to prejudice. They were hearing, but not really listening. And rather than listen, they preferred to start a riot. But the Bereans, they're a very different kettle of fish. They didn't come closed-minded and prejudiced with minds already made up. 
No, they came with open minds. They came with minds fair and thoughtful towards God's word. Their hearts are open, not hardened. They, they came with a teachable attitude, ready to give the gospel a fair hearing. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, first of all, thank you so much for coming. As I said earlier, it's not always easy to walk into a church, and so we really appreciate you joining us. This is a great place to start to learn about what the Bible teaches and who Jesus is. But secondly, let me ask you, are you willing to be as open-minded as the Bereans, to hear what the Bible actually has to say? There are so many people in the world today that I think assume they know what Christianity is about and dismiss it out of hand. And in my experience, most of these people think they understand, but they don't. And I don't say that because they're stupid. They're, most of them are more intelligent than me. But I say that mainly because they haven't taken the time to look into it properly for themselves. So, but are you open to looking into it properly, just like the Bereans did? Perhaps open even to reading John's Gospel, we've just been hearing about, with a friend or with someone here in the church. God commends the nobility of the Bereans, not because they believe or disbelieve things based on blind faith, he commends them because they're open to hearing and considering what the Bible has to say. They're open-minded, not closed-minded, when it comes to considering the message about Jesus. So let me encourage you to do that if you're here this morning and you're not sure that you are a Christian yet. But for those of us that are Christians, openness to God's word is meant to be a posture that we continue all throughout our Christian lives. There is, of course, a great call in our culture today to be open-minded people. And, and that's good to an extent. We should be open-minded to listen to what people think and say. But ultimately, we need to be open to listening and submitting to what God has said in his words. And sometimes, as we open God's word, we might encounter difficult doctrines that we struggle to embrace. It might be things on marriage or sexuality or God's sovereignty or something else besides. And in those on those occasions, we must test these things against God's word. We must be, as Christians, fully open to hearing what God's word says. Sometimes we encounter Christian moral standards that clash with the way we want to live. We must be open to truly hearing what God's word says, even if it means big changes in our life as a result. The alternative, which is kind of to stick our fingers in our ears and ignore what God is saying, perhaps even while still calling ourselves a Christian, that's a really dangerous and dark road to go down. It's not a safe and happy road to take. And um, as I was thinking about that this week, it reminded me of a, a time, this is going back some years, I was a student. Uh, we were heading down to Hill House, which many of you will know because we, we have our church weekend there again this year. And so we're in this big coach, and the driver thought he knew a shortcut. And maybe when you went to Hill House last year, you tried to take a shortcut. He thought he knew a shortcut. He thought he knew the best way to go. And so he turned off down this B road in this, I don't know, is it 12-ton, 13-ton, 52-seater coach in the dark. And his headlights, no doubt, began to catch the warning signs of increasingly narrow roads and signs that said no heavy loads, but he carried on confident that he knew where he was going. Well, finally, he realized 
this was not going to turn out well. We, the coach arrived in the tiniest, narrowest village you've ever seen. You know those kind of villages that have got no pavements and the, the lovely cobbled stone cottages? Their walls are right out on the road. And so there we are, stuck in this tiny little village. Finally, he realizes he's gone the wrong way, and the only way back is to reverse. But by this point, he's very nearly stuck. And this was a difficult and painful mistake, not just because there were like 52 young uh, young folks in the back looking on, you know, kind of with that kind of wonder and almost glee. It's terrible, isn't it, really? But you're like, oh, this is so exciting. Um, so there we are in the back. But he's also in trouble because the only way out is to reverse this giant coach back the way he came. And though it wasn't impossible, and it was certainly essential, reversing wasn't easy. And at one point, he actually reversed into the side of a cottage, scraping his coach, uh, taking off some masonry, and upsetting a disgruntled homeowner. Here's the thing. If we don't listen to God's words because we think we know better, then like my coach driver, we will drive ourselves deeper into painful and difficult places. And if we don't ultimately back up and repent and reverse we'll find ourselves lost forever in an incredibly dark place. No character trait is more important in a person than uh, than to have a spirit of humility and teachability before God. Every other virtue flows out of a spirit of humility and a resolve to be just like the noble Bereans who were first and foremost open to listening to what God has said. They were first of all open. Secondly, they were careful and this one's a really important balance to the first. They were open but careful. Verse 11, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, you've got to think about this for a moment. They are there listening to the Apostle Paul, possibly the greatest Christian teacher in the history of the church, an actual apostle commissioned by the risen Jesus himself. But the Bereans are considered noble by God Because as they listen to even a great teacher like Paul, they listen with an open Bible or with an open Old Testament to make sure that what this apostle is saying is actually matching with what God has said in his words. The word examine here is one that would be used in judicial investigations. You think of the meticulous care that a really good judge would take in examining the evidence before them. It implies integrity impartiality, looking closely and conscientiously and turning over every leaf. The Bereans were practicing careful discernment. And so if someone were ever to suggest that to be a Christian means you never ask questions, that you never wrestle with ideas, that you never look more deeply into the Bible for yourself, but simply believe what the church or a certain preacher tells you, they would be seriously and categorically wrong. Such a suggestion is unbiblical. We can see that here in Acts 17. It's unbiblical to say that we shouldn't have the Bible open for ourselves and check that what we're hearing is true. We are called to examine the word like the Bereans and see if these things are so. I hope you're doing that even this morning as we're looking at Acts 17. Now, of course, we want to find pastors, teachers, Older Christians, mentors, friends who we trust to explain God's word to us faithfully. But even then, we shouldn't deactivate our minds from examining the scriptures for ourselves to see if what we're being taught is actually biblically true. 
As it says at the beginning of the Christianity Explored course, becoming a Christian isn't about leaving your brain at the door. And the New Testament repeatedly warns us as well that there will be false teachers always out there in the world. People who claim to be Christians and even Christian teachers, but who are actually leading people astray. And sometimes uh, these, these teachers, they're even more impressive, uh, charismatic, flashy, well-dressed than faithful teachers. Okay, that's why I look a bit scruffy, it's to make sure you know I'm faithful. <laughs> Sorry, it's a joke. But that was the case with Paul. He, he had a, apparently a, a reputation for not looking very impressive. I think he was kind of squinty-eyed and uh, maybe he was going bald and uh, I don't know how he dressed, but he didn't look very impressive and he was constantly having to push back against much more flashy teachers teaching false things. Be in no doubt, there is even more false teaching and dodgy teaching at large in the world today. In churches and in Christian books, on Christian radio, in podcasts, online videos, worship songs, and even in many everyday well-meaning Christian conversations that we might have. There has never been a greater need for individual Christians and churches to exercise care and discernment towards the teaching we receive, both so that none of us will be led astray and into dark places, but also so that none of us will inadvertently end up propagating false teaching, even accidentally, to other people. We need to exercise a Berean-like carefulness about the counsel we give and receive about the books we lend and read, about the podcasts and the online preachers that we listen to and recommend. Acts 17 is a timely reminder that God's word must be the final, ultimate arbiter of truth in our lives. That The Bible's meant to be like that little testing gizmo. That's not the technical word for it, I know. Uh, that electricians bring round to your house when they're trying to test the plug sockets. Uh, we had an electrician in not so long ago, and he was doing some other bits, but I was like, there's this mysterious plug socket in our house, uh, and I thought it would work years ago, but I said, it's not working now, can you test it? And so he, he put his voltage detector, I guess it is, into the plug socket to see what was, was going on. And he confirmed, first of all, yes, this plug socket is not working. There was no current. Well, then he investigated a little bit further, and he found that behind the socket the wires had never been connected to the plug. Uh, so not only does that, um, well, unsurprisingly, throw into question my memory that this socket used to work, obviously didn't, but, but more importantly, this plug had been a fake for 50 years. And for 17 of those years, which is how long we've lived in our house, I hadn't even realized this plug is a fake. I thought it was just faulty, but it's actually an out-and-out -out fake. The Bible is the church's one true voltage detector to test if a truth claim or a bit of teaching is actually from God. An idea or a truth claim, it can look very Christian-like, and it might look fairly legit like my plug socket did. But the only way to test if it's really genuine, if it's really connected to the divine mains, connected to God, is to plug in the Bible and see if it shows up clearly in here. As it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything, hold fast what is good. Noble listeners are open to God's word, careful with God's word, and thirdly and finally we see eager for God's word. Verse 11, here again is part of their nobility, 
Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. They approached the Bible's teaching with eager expectation. They were enthusiastic to hear Paul preach. They didn't put him off until another day. They came with a sense of expectancy and even urgency. They wanted to hear. Remember, these aren't even Christians yet, but they are coming hungry. In our house, I don't know about yours, some of the greatest displays of eagerness are around hunger and food. Uh, there's not nearly as much eagerness in our house for uh, doing the chores, doing the washing up, uh, vacuuming, whatever it might be, cleaning the toilet. But there's definitely an eagerness for dinner. When people are hungry, they come eagerly for snacks or dinner. And my question to us this morning is, are we hungry today? Are we hungry for something more than what's in our life right now? Are we hungry to know more of our God? The God who made the planets and the stars, as we heard at the beginning of our service. The God who made our minds and bodies and hearts. He richly reveals himself in this book, in his words. And he encourages us to come to it with all of the eagerness and the appetite of a newborn baby coming for milk. 1 Peter 2 verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And if this morning you haven't tasted, you haven't tasted before that the Lord is good. Again, if you're not a Christian here this morning, are you open to trying it? Are you open to reading it for yourself, beginning to read? For those of us who are already believers here this morning, are we still hungry and eager for more? Are we still hungry for this? I love what Kent Hughes says when he writes, Eagerness makes all the difference in the flavor, quality, and nobility of our Christian lives. If we've been tasting the Bible recently and it has it just, just been tasting dry, just feels like there's nothing in it for us, well, here's part of what we need and what we need to pray for. We need to pray for an eagerness. It makes all the difference in the flavor, quality, and nobility of our Christian lives. The Christian life is most stimulating when we allow ourselves to be open to learning and growth, continually immersing ourselves in the Scriptures. Luke tells us the Bereans' eagerness could be seen in how frequently they were immersing themselves in God's Word. They were, verse 11, examining the Scriptures daily. Not just weekly, but daily. Not just in the synagogue, but in their homes. And they weren't even Christians yet. But that inclination to examine the Scriptures daily, with eagerness, it shouldn't disappear once we are Christians. On the contrary, it's meant to grow. Eagerness for God's Word is a sign that the Spirit is at work within us. The Christian life is a bit like being a sailboat at sea. There's a direction that God is calling us to go in and grow in. And God's word, breathed out by his spirit, is like the wind that's given to blow us in the right direction each day. But we can be so easily tempted to drop our sails, can't we? Over time, drop our sails or turn them in a different direction and think, no, I'm just going to kind of catch a different breeze and see where that takes me. We can be tempted to stop leaning into the daily headwind that the spirit gives us in the word. The question we have to ask ourselves is, why do we do that? Why would we do that? Why drop our sails when the key to moving forward in the Christian life with joy 
is to raise the sails and turn them into the path of the Spirit's word each day. To lean in with eagerness to what God has so richly provided to fill our sails with the winds of his grace each day. What God has provided for us in his word. A devotional I was recently reading, uh, the author said this, I have found that time and time again my walk with Jesus rises and falls with my reading of the scriptures. It's not that his love for me fluctuates when I spend less time in his word. Not at all. It's that my love for him does. That has been so true of me. And I feel like my appetite has been uh, waning and diminishing in, just in, in recent weeks and months. But like Martha last week, we can be distracted by many things, even good and necessary things. But only one thing is absolutely necessary each day. To sit for a time listening at the feet of Jesus. Again and again, our walk with Jesus rises and falls with our reading of the Scriptures. God is here this morning, I believe, in his word, commending to us a renewed eagerness for his word. An eagerness to examine and enjoy the scriptures each day. And what's wonderful is God never tells us to do anything, never commends us to do something or commands us to do something without also promising to give us the strength that we need to do it, if only we'll ask. So let's ask the Lord to make us as eager as the Bereans again for his word to make wise choices and ask for his help even to surgically remove. This is what I need to do. Um, last week, I turned my phone on to black and white. Okay, and someone told me that's helpful, and it is. Turn my phone on to black and white. It's less distracting, less of a pull. Let's ask for God's help to even surgically remove unnecessary distractions in order to give more uninterrupted time to spending in God's word, to being in his word, the Bereans, they were open, they were careful, and they were eager. And all of this made them noble in the eyes of God. And it also turned their world upside down for the better. And in turn, it made them the kind of people who could turn other people's up, worlds upside down too with that same gospel as well. Could we, with our lives, pray for our lives to have any greater impact on the world than that? that the Lord would help us be increasingly faithful witnesses with his word and increasingly noble listeners to his word as well. It's a prayer that we can be sure God will answer if we pray it. So why don't we pray it together now and pray with faith and expectation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your word again this morning. Oh Lord, we thank you for showing us Jesus in its pages and showing us more of how you would have us listen to him, love him, and live for him. Father, we thank you most of all that he first loved us and laid down his life for us to give us new life in him. Oh Lord, this morning our prayer together is that you would grant us a continuing hunger for the scriptures. Lord, would you make us ever thirsty for the feasts that await us in its pages. And we pray, please deliver us from ever accepting teaching about you without examining what your word says to see if the things we're hearing and reading are really so. And Lord, please, we pray, help us to be increasingly faithful witnesses with your word. Lord, we're so unconfident in ourselves and it's a relief to hear and it, that doesn't matter. 
Help us, Lord, to be confident in your word and in you. That you are able, through your word, to make people wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Make us eager, Lord, to find ways to introduce people to what you have revealed about your Son. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.